Hi to Fidoi. I'm Fletcher from mindforlanguage.com, and you're listening to Greeking Out, a podcast for ancient and coining Greek learners full of tools, tips, and possibly tirades on learning Greek using comprehension-based methods. If that isn't familiar to you, check out episode zero, The Manifesto, for more info. Today I'm chatting with Colin Gorey, and we're not talking about Greek. Actually, we're talking about Old English. Why, you ask? Well, good question. Colin is developing a comprehensible input-based textbook for Old English, and he's also teaching it using communicative methods with the Ancient Language Institute. You see, Old English is even more of a niche language than Ancient Greek is, and so I think there's a lot of things here that we can apply to our own learning journeys, even if it's not the same language. Collins also does stuff on YouTube about uh, constructed languages and just linguistics in general. He's a really cool guy, and this is a great conversation. So I think you'll really enjoy it. Our conversation ranges, as usual, from his story, learning his ancient language. We talk about fantasy literature, the book he's working on for Old English, his teaching. And again, there's there's a lot of good things that we can learn here and apply to our own journey. Earbuds ready? Let's jump in. So hi, Colin. It's it's great to have you on. Oh, an absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Um yeah, I, I really appreciate it. I know it took us a little while to get the all the schedules worked out. I was traveling and you've been traveling. And so it's great. It's finally uh, managed to happen. Um, so you're a little bit, uh, you'll be probably the only personal interview on this podcast about this because you're doing Old English rather than Greek is your primary, primary language, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, Old English is not a language that's typically taught um, via comprehensible input methods. And I've been trying to adapt those for use with Old English. So so I want to get into how you actually learned Old English, but it looks like, correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're teaching right now and kind of developing something that looks a little bit like uh, Lingua Latina Persia Illustrata, but for uh, Old English. Is that yeah, correct? That's right. That's right. So it's uh, so the book is called Oswald the Bear, Oswald the Bear. And it's uh, it's a it's a reader that's very much similar to Familia Romana um, in the Lingua Latina Persi Illustrata series. So it's sim- similar in the sense that it um, it starts from a very very basic level with very uh, introducing vocabulary, sort of dripping uh, new vocabulary out a little bit at a time, gradually increasing the complexity of the structures and um, it sort of teaches the language all through the medium of a, a developing story. Right. Which from my limited use of lingua Latina seems to be what it's doing. And just correct me if I'm wrong, seems to be a really great method for acquiring ancient languages where you don't have speakers. You can go have beginning conversations with, and then move up to more advanced kind of things. Yes. It, uh, as far as I can tell, um, it's the gold standard for learning ancient languages. I think it would actually work pretty well for a modern language too, but we also have the benefit of of having people we can talk to, native speakers and things like that. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm kind of struggling to learn Korean at the moment, and I wish there was a lingua latina for that. That would be amazing. So, okay, so how did you get started with Old English? What, um, what got you interested? Yeah, yeah it's a sort of strange... Um, strange series of events. I had my first ancient language was Latin, which I learned back in high school. And I learned it the old fashioned way, um, the sort of grammar translation method. 
uh, you know, sitting in class and having the teacher, um, it was an amazing teacher, but he would, he had this sort of, uh, uh, Magister Wiley. He had this, uh, habit of turning to us and saying gender number case. And okay, uh, it's uh oh wait, masculine uh dative plural. Why? Uh because it's the indirect object of the you know. so we you know we had that experience, which which definitely did get us um to a high level in the language, but we had this common problem that I think a lot of learners of ancient languages have where uh the whole experience of reading uh primary text feels a little bit like a Sudoku puzzle. Uh-huh. Yeah. I um, mean you know, finding the verb, you get your little highlighters out marking things in the same color that agree and and it's not a, a smooth and um it's not like reading in uh, our our first languages or in other modern languages that we we know really well and so you know i put that to the side and i ended up studying um linguistic theory uh for my sort of academic life and after a while after after grad school i had thought is there some way of applying some of the things we know about how language works in the mind to studying these ancient languages? And lo and behold, I wasn't the first person to ask that question, not by a long shot. There'd been people who've been working on this for decades. And so I immersed myself in that literature and started to learn all about um, how second language acquisition uh, theory has been applied to the study and teaching of ancient languages and uh, you know, to really great results, I think, especially with Latin um, and also to a certain extent with ancient Greek, I think there's, there are, you know, fewer resources for, for Greek, but they're, they're definitely coming along. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to try this with some other languages? And mm. I thought, what, which one should I do? And I looked onto my bookshelf and I saw that an old grammar of, of, of old English that I'd picked up at a garage sale many years ago. And I thought, I've never really managed to sit down and go through this and really understand, um, what it's like to read old English. And I sort of bootstrapped my way into this uh, into this story-based approach by taking the old old-fashioned materials, the grammar translation materials, using it to teach myself, and then building up and starting to write this story and develop it uh, over the years as I've learned the language better and tweaked parts here and there. Uh, so it's been a kind of um, eat your own dog food kind of method. Okay, man, that's that's really interesting. Um... I mean, the vast majority of people I've interviewed on here started in a similar way. You know, it's the grammar translation in high school or college uh, for one of their first ancient languages and then switch somehow to either using, like learning through communicative methods or using it uh, as a, a teaching method. But it sounds like you kind of, you're following that same pattern, but then uh, using it for, yeah, old English, a language that not many people are teaching really. Mm-hmm. Not many people are teaching. Period, <laughs> and then right. not, and then virtually no one is teaching, um, to my knowledge, using these kinds of methods. Uh, so it was, it's been real, um, really instructive to see what the process looks like when you're developing the materials more or less from scratch, and mm. uh, it's just been, it's just been a real uh, vote of confidence for the methods, uh, these methods that focus around getting lots of uh, input into students, um, comprehensible input in particular. And, uh, you know, you, you can just see the process work, uh, with students and it gives, you know, I, I never doubted the literature or anything like that, but it's some, it's one thing to read about it. And it's another thing to see it happen. So, so you said like you, you kind of eat your own dog food, right. As you're learning. So you're working. So 
let me just get my head around this. So you have this old grammar and you're working through that and then you're kind of writing stories and how exactly does that feed into the, you know, you learning through comprehensible methods? Like play, play that out for me a little more. Yeah. So in the early days, I would, um, I'd say read uh, a passage. So the typical way that old English is taught, um, it's a little bit different than the traditional uh, way that say Latin uh, or I think ancient Greek is taught. Um, you get a book. They're usually Victorian textbooks. They have a grammar of the language in the front, and then they have a selection of texts in the back. And hmm. the pedagogy is read the grammar, memorize it, and then read the texts. And, okay. you know, I think probably <laughs> listeners know that that doesn't set a, a great chance of working. And it's very frustrating, right? but it can be done if you spend enough time doing it. And so what I did was I just sort of banged my head against the wall with that uh, with that approach. And then I would go and try and apply it by doing some composition of my own and starting to write little, little stories, or I would take, um, I would take texts and simplify them and rewrite them in, uh, prose using only common vocabulary. And then I would leave them to the side, read more. I would say, okay, interesting. I've found a new construction that, that better expresses this meaning that I wanted to to, to use in one of my compositions. So I'd go back to my composition, I would change it. And it was sort of, it built up to a point that I could just start reading basically any text and have that more or less immediate understanding that I have in modern English. And that happened over a relatively, um, a relatively short period of time measured in the, I mean, still measured in the years, but, uh, but, but not too many of them. And I thought, okay, if I could do this using sort of methods that I've um, bricolaged together, how much easier would it be for students if they had a, a sort of a, a nice flat paved road to go on? Right. And so that's that's what Oswald Vera uh, was born from, is the, the need to, the desire to take the sort of winding path that I uh, took in my own learning and, and smooth it out and make it a little, uh, a little easier for students to go down. So, so just to reiterate, it sounds like what you, what you did is you took less than ideal resources, which you described that, and I immediately thought of some Greek books I've got, like Clyde Farr's uh, Homeric Greek textbook, which is very similar. Like the chapter is here's a bunch of bullet points that refer to the and numbers that refer to the grammar chapter. Memorize this, and then learn this vocab. Read these sections. So you took like less than ideal materials, kind of worked through them, and then, I like say you finish a chapter there, and then you start writing a story or adapting a text that's in one of the readings, but to tell a different story using similar vocab or something like that. Is that, am I reiterating that well? Yeah, that's right. So for example, um, the, you know, the big, I think the big goal for a lot of old English speakers or a lot of English, old English learners is to read Beowulf. And so right. I took, I took Beowulf, uh, I took se uh, sections of Beowulf, some, some scenes, and I would try and rewrite them. Um, so it, Beowulf is, is written, um, in, in verse. And so I'd rewrite them in prose and mm. I would take the, vo the poetic vocabulary and replace it with more prosaic vocabulary. And, and then I would, um, I would use that as my, my little composition exercise. And then I, I actually started in those very early days teaching with some of that material too, um, more casually, um, you know, not with this whole curriculum in mind, but just as a, a way of, of getting started and, and helping some people who, uh, also wanted to to take some first steps in old english um and and then it sort of snowballed from there as as i was able to handle more and more complex texts i was able to write 
more and more without feeling that I was on thin ice. Um, mm. And, and, you know, the process I think still continues to this day as I read more and more in, right. in the original literature, I'll find a great turn of phrase and I'll think, okay, I've got to find, I've got to use that in the, in Oswald because it's exactly what I want to express here. Or I might uh, find that a term that I've been using is, uh, you know, wrong for the time period that I'm setting the story. So, you know, mm. there's a constant period, there's a cost, constant process of, um, of tweaking and polishing, but by and large, um, you get to a point where your model of the language in your mind is a sufficient fit to the language as it existed, that you can start to, and I'll switch metaphors here, you can start to sort of cross the river on that bridge, even though it might be a little rickety in places. Right. But I mean, that's, I mean, ultimately, that's kind of what we're doing, learning any ancient language, because we're not native speakers. So we're always encountering things that may not match up exactly with how we think the language works. Um, and especially, I think, with ancient Greek, like when we say ancient Greek, we're referring to hundreds and hundreds of years of material, which languages change. And there was a lot going on in the ancient world and contacts between empires and things. They could change quite quickly. Um, so, I mean, it's not, you're kind of, I think with ancient Greek, especially, we're kind of building multiple bridges across the river, across potentially multiple rivers, hoping they all get us to the place we're trying to go. So mm -hmm. that, um, it, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, and it sounds really interesting too, because you're, you're getting, I think, composition in much earlier than a lot of ancient language learners might necessarily want to do, but that's, you know, that's one of your four skills that you know, we need is to learn a language in a, a well-rounded way. It sounds like I'm assuming you probably felt like, okay, I've learned something, I've read a text, and now I've written it, and now it probably felt like you've cemented some of those pieces of grammar and new structures in your mind. Um, I would think probably fairly quickly. Exactly. I've found the composition uh, to be an extraordinarily helpful thing. Um, with my own students, I use composition in a slightly different way, um, given that the uh, typical demographic of people I teach are not... Um, necessarily language professionals in some sense, but they're interested, they're, they're professionals in other domains who have a, a strong interest in learning the language. And so instead of having them do written composition, we do um, what you might call oral composition in class. So mm. the, the, the class, the classes are structured. So I teach at the ancient language Institute, um, mm. teach old English and Latin there. And the way the, the uh, classes are structured is we read a chapter of the text um, together and in class, so uh, well, I'll have the students read different, you know, maybe one paragraph each, you know, read this paragraph. And then we talk about it in Old English. We talk about what happened in that paragraph. I'll ask some questions. What did you think about this character? Do you think he should be trusted? And what I'm doing by asking those questions is trying to prompt, um, trying to prompt certain replies. Uh, hmm. I'm not, you know, it's not, I'm not looking for these exact words, but I'm giving opportunities to use a construction or I'm giving opportunities to use a particular um, vocabulary item. And what I've found, uh, and I think I'm not alone in this, is that having a need to know something makes you much more receptive to acquiring it. Yeah. So I'll give an example using vocabulary. I think it's a pretty common thing to experience that you don't always you don't always learn a vocabulary item on the first uh, 
the first meeting. Sometimes it takes dozens of meetings yeah. for particularly thorny words. But if you have a, if you are sort of in the moment and you really want to express a concept and you don't know it, that almost primes your mind to be very receptive to getting that answer. And you can have this this almost one shot learning where you see uh, where you see a vocabulary item once, and just from seeing it once in this heightened state of receptiveness, you've learned it. And mm -hmm. so the composition exercises, I think that's a big uh, a big factor in why composition is so successful as a as a learning strategy. And that's how I try to incorporate that into the classes without um, giving an sort of a, an excessive burden of having of students having to write and of course teachers having to to grade that so i think the oral composition in class is a really a really um i don't want to say underutilized but i mean i'll say underutilized i think i could even use it more it's it, that's how effective it is but uh, and i think i think that oral strategy makes a lot of sense because you know having just written some greek stuff and messing around with it like since I'm assuming your old English text is using thorns and other characters that are not on standard, you know, most standard keyboards. So now we have the additional mm -hmm. burden of the student, in addition to having to grapple with the language, has to learn how to type and deal with one, you know, the key, ancient language keyboards can be good, bad, difficult, you know, I don't know what's out there for old English and if it's pleasant to use or not, but that's just another thing they have to interact with and they have to learn how to use. Um, and I know for Greek, it's typing in Greek is a pain. <laughs> Um, because of all the accents and things. And I guess with old English, maybe you don't have to deal with quite so much, but still. Not quite, not as many as Greek. I find typing Greek to be difficult. You know, without the accents, it'd be great. But, um, you know, those little, at least on, on my keyboard layout, the accents are all sort of clustered in one spot and some are, you have to do shift and I never remember what's what. Yeah. Um, but with old English, it's not quite so bad. Um, we have long vowels, which are marked with a, uh, a macron or an acute. Um, we have thorn, which is a, which is it looks like a combination between a lowercase b and a lowercase p, which stands for the th sound. Um, and we have a few other characters: um, the ash, the ae ligature, um, mm -hmm. which you know these are things that are not on your standard um, English keyboard. But depending on what kind of software you're using, there are more or less easy ways to do it. But still, I you know. I, in, I tell students in emails, you know, if you can't find Thorn, write TH. I mean, that actually is found in some manuscripts as well. Um, so I think that's really not the thing that we want to be challenging. Right. The, you know, the, the ch there's enough challenge in, in learning the grammar and learning the vocabulary of a language. These are sort of small ancillary things that if we can make them easier, let's make them easier. And so oral composition has that benefit where you don't have to uh, struggle to find the character on a keyboard because it just comes out of okay. your mouth. So I'm imagining that crafting those questions as a teacher, crafting the questions to elicit those things, that, that probably takes quite a bit of thought and effort. It's um, it's something that I typically, so I, I do a combination of pre-planned questions and um, sort of on the spot improvisation. And I, I think it's good to mix these two. I think the, obviously, as a teacher, it's a lot easier to sit down beforehand, come up with a list of questions and just say them in class. But there's something to the live energy mm -hmm. of coming up with questions um, that 
you know, you want to see where the discussion takes you. Students could become really interested in one character and want to explore his motives, or um, they might be interested in a historical, uh, a bit of historical context that comes up from the story. So in writing Oswald Berra, I've tried to, um, I've tried to make a lot, include a lot of historical Easter eggs, and mm. historical and literary Easter eggs, so that it can also be not only an introduction to the old English language, but an introduction to the history of Anglo-Saxon England and uh, and the sort of literary genres that that you see when you get into that literature. So um, the book is sort of set up episodically where the, our hero Oswald goes on different adventures and each adventure is sort of takes, uh, it takes place in uh, kind of within one of the genres of old English uh, literature. So you get, he spends some time at a monastery and he learns you know, you you get this sort of old English prose style where uh, works of say grammar, where someone's explaining these are the different declensions and this is these are the different cases and we have this stuff in old English, mm-hmm. um, and he's sort of sitting there in class, you know, saying trying to find trying to find exceptions and prove the teacher wrong and, and these sort of things. So by the time you've read that, when you go to read uh, an author like Alfrich, uh, who wrote. A great many things, um, but one of them is the Colloquy on the Professions, which is sort of a Latin uh, textbook. It's a, it's a dialogue between um, a teacher and some students about what the best profession is. And it's it, it was originally in Latin, but we have an Old English gloss because it was made for Old English speakers learning Latin. And in that dialogue, you see different names for different professions showing up in all the different cases of Latin. Hmm. And and so it's a it's in itself an interesting pedagogical text, um, but you are introduced to this by fa- the fact that you've sort of seen it in miniature in Oswald, and similarly you see Oswald go into to battle against the Danes, and you get ready for texts like the Battle of Malden, which is on the same topic. So um, I think that's uh, that's a useful that's a useful thing to include in the material because it sparks up all sorts of discussions in class where students ask, you know, what was the Dane law? Why were the Danes in England? And then we can talk about that in old English. Um, maybe not in the first few weeks, but soon enough. Yeah. So, all right. So, um, I mean, I guess anytime we're learning an ancient language, we're time traveling, but we're learning an ancient version of our own life. I mean, I'm an English speaker, you know, assume you're an American as well. So, um, you know, oh, close enough. I'm a Canadian. Canadian. Sorry. I, why didn't I even think to ask that? Um, yeah. So still, you probably have a little more French in your background than I might, but you know, native English speakers. Um, and I know, you know, I know our case system is all but dead. Um, and you know, at, at this point in the, the history of the language, but we're backing up to a period where I, I'm assuming we don't have all the, the Latin roots and things in there. Like how, how different is old English from, um, you know, from modern English and what does it feel like studying something that feels like it should be recognizable, but probably isn't quite. Yeah. It's a, it's a really delightful mixture of the foreign and the familiar. Mm. So as, as you, um, as you said, old English has a lot less of the Latin influence um, compared to modern English. Now it's not that it has none. There's actually a, a fair few, there are a fair few Latin loan words in, in old English, but we don't have that massive dose of French that we get in the Middle English period. Um, and then the massive dose of Latin that we get in the early modern period with this sort of international philosophical and scientific vocabulary. Um, so we have a, a much more Germanic 
you know, English is a Germanic language, but Old English, you can see that much more obviously. Um, the vocabulary stock is you know, overwhelmingly uh, Germanic, shared with the other Germanic languages, the Scandinavian languages, German, and, and so on. Um, you also do have a case system, uh, which is not as robust and involved as that of Latin, Greek, or Sanskrit, but um, you know, you have basically four cases which um which have their distinct forms and are very much not optional and are often quite important for understanding what goes on in the sentence. We have a freer word order. So a lot of things mm. that make um that we're familiar with from if we've studied other Indo-European languages, especially older Indo-European languages like Latin and ancient Greek, you start to see that in in a language that looks a, a lot like English. And so it's a very strange experience to see these things that you associate with, you know, these classical languages operating with vocabulary that looks very similar in some cases. In some cases, it doesn't look that similar. You know, uh, my favorite example in Old English is Merksnawang. Merksnawang means paradise. And okay. it's it's my example. People say, you know, oh, choose Anglo-Saxon roots, Anglo-Saxon words. They're nice and short. And I think, well, they're not all that short. <laughs> Merksnawang. Um, although, you know, etymologically that was originally two, two words. Um, nevertheless, it, it sort of shows up on its own all the time. It's a lovely word. I'd love to see that X in the middle there. Yeah. That's it, it, if you said that word to me, I would, I would never have guessed that was old English. Um, yeah, you know, I'm not sure what I would have gone with, but yeah, that's, that's crazy. Interesting. So, so I, I guess just selling, you know, selling old English, but what else what else can we read in it i mean again i'm i'm more of my life has been in greek and things like that so i, I know of beowulf um i have a really cool edition of it with seamus heaney's translation facing the old english which i can make almost nothing of um but like so what else do we have uh you mentioned a, a dialogue text earlier which i've already forgotten mm -hmm. yeah alfred's uh, colloquy Alfred. on the professions is that so alfred uh, has so we can divide um Old English literature sort of in a two by two. So there's the prose and the poetic works, and mm -hmm. then there's the religious and the secular. Um, so we see we see a lot in each of those, those four quadrants. Uh, people, I think, are most familiar with the secular poetry. So Beowulf is an example of that. Um, but we also have um, religious poetry. We have uh, a text that I'm working a lot with right now, which is the Andreas, which is a, a sort of a an old English um, heroic poem about the life of St. Andrew. Okay. Uh, and it, it's very similar in many ways to Beowulf. Um, a lot of these stories are adapted for the, the, the Anglo-Saxon psyche. So you have these saints going and, you know, they're, they're presented as these kind of conquering heroes. And um, you have a lot of the same poetic devices used as in Beowulf. Even the very first uh, line in the poem is very, very similar to Beowulf. Um, which has this device of saying, um, you know, we've heard in, in ancient times about the deeds of these noble princes, more or less like that. And Andreas also starts with very, very similar, um, a very, very similar, almost like it's kind of like an invocation. Um, hmm. This, uh, So it's, it's very interesting to see the similarities between the religious and the secular poetry. The elegiac poems, um, the most famous are the Wanderer and the Seafarer. So these are poems that talk about the transitory nature of life and they're beautiful and and justly famous um and relatively short so those are those are um well loved in terms of the 
prose, we have lots of, we have uh, translations of the gospels. We have translations of, um, we have translations of, of, of several other books of the Bible, not a complete translation. Um, we have many homilies, uh, especially by Alfred. She was a very, very prolific writer mm. um, who wrote towards the end of the period. Uh, in terms of in terms of secular prose, we have things like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. We have many law codes. And these are probably, uh, well, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is of, of interest to students of history. Um, we have lots of things like law codes and wills that are interesting to perhaps uh, researchers more than the general audience. Um, but we also have a lovely, um, we also have lovely travelogues about, um, that tell us a lot of eth ethnographic information about people who lived around the Baltic Sea and um, there's lots of, it, it really opens up a window onto this period of history because English was sort of unique amongst the uh, Germanic languages of um, in that it was written fairly early on in history. So it's oh. one of the earliest attested Germanic languages, Old English. Um, Gothic is before it, but um, after that, the, the flourishing of other Germanic languages, literatures come come later than than that of old english so it's a really uh it's really great for uh learning about sort of linguistic history of the germanic languages as well as the history history of the germanic peoples so actually that was one of the questions that occurred to me when you were talking about you know these these poems and things is um were many of these things originally composed orally and later written like we think may have happened with homer or was it originally um written documents and i guess it varies by which quadrant of the literature we're in and what you know how close to the beginning or end of the period but yes yeah well okay so i'll say for the poems that people are most um that are most famous so beowulf is the big the big one that has a question mark over it um was this written was this a written composition was this an oral composition that was later written down when was it written by whom under what circumstances these are very very hotly debated uh questions so it's it's um it, we still don't really know the answers to these questions. There are arguments on both sides of the sort of oral versus uh, written composition uh, for Beowulf. But uh, so I can't give a definitive answer on that. Um, this is something that, you know, this is the kind of thing that people throw chairs at each other in conferences right. over. So I'm not going to say anything. But um, but just to say that it is, it's an open question. But the prose works are largely, um, the prose works are translations of, uh, in in many part in many cases the prose works are translations of Latin texts, mm. um, so they were certainly written um, okay. compositions. Um, but uh, there is some evidence that some of the poetry is a very early date, or at least some parts of the poems are a very early date from from uh, certain grammatical characteristics and uh, you know weird nerd details about the ex precise workings of the meter uh, that that we can work out. But uh, yeah. Not everyone accepts all of those arguments. So, uh, again, another connection in my mind as I, I listen to you talk about the literature. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fantasy nerd, fantasy fan, like Lewis, Tolkien. Um, you know, I know a lot of those guys, professors of ancient European languages, like you know, Old Norse and Old English and stuff. And as you've as you've gotten to know Old English and the Old English literature, does that affect how you read modern or you know? Lewis Tolkien and even modern, you know, fantasy writers. Like, do you see those things echoed in in how they, how in the stories they tell? Or, oh yes, I mean Tolkien especially um, because he was a major scholar of Old English and a major scholar of Beowulf, um, so he has a very very direct connection uh, 
to Old English. His work, I mean, there is just Old English present in Tolkien's work that is not mentioned as such, but, um, you know, the the men of Rohan, their names are Old English. Theoden uh, means Lord in Old English. Interesting. So it's, it's, there's a lot of just Old English sneaking around all over the place. Um, uh, other examples, um, uh, so the Darol, Darol, uh, sm- so Deagle, uh, usually pronounced in modern English, Smeagol's friend. Those are mm-hmm. Old English words. Darol, um, or in different dialect, um, Deagol, which is uh, secret. So it's there are all sorts of things um, that are hanging around in in Tolkien's work that rewards you if you know Old English. And mm. of course, the stories that he tells are also very are also echo a lot of the uh, the themes of old English literature, um, especially this the idea of sneaking into a dragon's uh, cave and stealing its treasure, and then the dragon coming out and wreaking havoc and having to be stopped by a a hero. This is this is the content of the latter half of Beowulf. Beowulf. So there are lots and lots of echoes, and I think it's fair to say that a lot of modern fantasy. Um, can you can trace its roots very very directly back to old English literature. So if for those of you who are interested in um, in fantasy literature, you you know old English is a very very logical uh, very very logical first step if you want to get into exploring the the history uh, of of what made that literature the way it is. That and Old Norse. Yeah, it, it's it, even the, the exposures I've gotten to things like reading Beowulf, even in translation and other you know poems from that period and then i go back and i read like the way lewis uh, sorry uh, the way tolkien narrates the battle of the pelinor field and the charge of you know the charge of rohan and before the gates of gondor and stuff and it just feels like i know he's writing prose but it feels like it's prose that's got a lot of poetry like feeling of poetry i mean he's it's like he's writing with that sense of grandeur that you don't you know that you get in some of these poems and um yes Yes, that's exactly what's going on. That's exactly what's going on. And Tolkien had a really amazing ability to shift his register depending on what yeah. he was describing. So you get um, you get very kind of um, plain spoken everyday language in some parts, and then you get this very very elevated, uh, almost poetic, um, heroic register when you you're getting to a section like the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. It's um, it, it's quite something. It's quite something, and knowing knowing old English, you can sort of see, you know, in in some ways, it's it's hard because once you 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 know old English, you can see a lot of the stuff that he's doing. You can say, ah, I see what you're up to there. Um, so, <laughs> if you want to keep it completely, you know, just just stand in awe, then um, sometimes it's it's better not to know how the sausage is made. But um, I think it 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 <laughs> I think it heightens your appreciation for the the artistry to sort of see what the see the tools that Tolkien was using yeah well that's really cool um so okay so back to back to you what you're currently working on thanks for indulging my random wanderings I'm you know I was trying to think like okay what's the you know again most people listen to this are Greek people so saying okay what's the what's the payoff what do you get by learning old English what can you read what can you explore um so that's kind of where some of my questions came from but Back to your project. So Oswald Bera, which I'm probably mispronouncing, um, is a you know, sort of graded uh, you know, reader kind of textbook where you're, you're getting 
vocabulary and structures introduced in a you know, ordered way so it eases with acquisition um and is that that's a fair assessment i think for what you said yes um and you're teaching with the ancient language institute um is do you have plan have you, have you published the the book anywhere at this point where we can where someone can read it or is it still so in development that you're kind of keeping it um just as a class in in class text at the moment so currently uh currently the latter currently it's only available as an in-class text through the ancient language institute mm -hmm. and for the reason that you describe um basically we are road testing it we have been road testing it for over a year now and we're at the point where um it's getting quite close to being ready for publication at least in some maybe alpha version um yeah. i want to get it out there so that people can start using it and that it can be improved from from their their feedback and their experience um so we're hoping to get a, a version out uh, a version published by next next year maybe next uh next summer okay yeah. and, and i remember i don't know if it was where i read this or maybe it was something i heard luke ronieri say but like lingua latina was a life's work for orberg right like it was it's so good because he he worked on it and re revised it and revised it which it sounds like that's what you're trying to do with this is mm -hmm. run it through students and make changes it's improved so much from the uh, from the experience of having used it with um, now uh, three uh, three cohorts of students. Um, you know, no major changes, but there are always places where okay, maybe this this passage is a little too difficult, or um, maybe I haven't you know pushed enough in this chapter, or the vocabulary density is too much in this section. These are all things that you learn as you go through and, you know, you see what questions students have and, and what, uh, where they, where they maybe get a little stuck and you can always smooth. So I don't see, you know, when it gets published next year, this will be, I'd like to think of it as the first word. Uh, it's not certainly not the last word. So just curious, how do you track you've got, you've got to lay out a road and build complexity slowly. Like how do you track and figure out that you've done that, that well? as you're writing. Uh, yeah. So, um, I have a, a large, large, uh, spreadsheet. <laughs> um, nice. I have, a, yes. And I have, um, had some, uh, some software help. Um, so James Talber, um, yep. shout out, uh, shout out to him. He gave me some, some code, which I, which for Greek, which I adapted for use, um, with old English. And so I basically, I'm running these scripts to, go through, lemmatize, normalize the chapters, spit out vocabulary list, tell me when I'm introducing new things, how many in each chapter. So it wouldn't have been possible without that. Huh. So it sounds like just thinking for those who want to, you know, maybe follow in your footsteps and with other things, there's, there's tools that are out there if you know the right people and are willing to slog through, I guess, Python and other. Yeah. Yeah. It, it required a bit of, it required some Python uh, knowledge to, to to mess with um fortunately in a previous life i that was my job so i i was okay. able to do that um but it's uh yeah we're not yet at the point where we have tools that are that can be used by just anyone who, who doesn't have that background uh, we're still i think in sort, sort of the early days of the support on building these things of course what, standing on the shoulders of giants uh, nice. i would never have been able to start without james's help um but uh 
but it, it does require a little bit of tweaking, especially to adapt to a new language. If I were working on Greek, it probably wouldn't have taken that that much effort um, because it was already in such a great state. But uh, Old English is, you know, certainly a different language and uh, requires, it has different considerations um, that, that we don't have to deal with as much inflectional complexity as um, as as Greek does, but we have a lot more um, orthographic variation in the in the texts, even oh, in the modern right. editions of the texts, um, there isn't the same push to normalize things um, for Old English texts. So you see it more or less as it is in the manuscript. Um, and, you know, it, at that time, there wasn't this idea that a word has a single spelling. People yeah. just tried to, re- you know, express what they said on the page. And so you'll get people spelling what we think of as the same word in seven different ways on the same page and that didn't seem to bother them but it bothers us a lot and it bothers uh it bothers uh, computer programs quite yeah. a, quite a bit so we have to account for that yeah because a computer you know, a thorn versus a th is two completely different things and it's not going to give you parses the same unless you tell it that th- these two things are potentially equivalent mm-hmm. exactly yeah so that, that required sense. some work um but uh but fortunately that was a sort of a a one-time initial investment and now the the code is up and running and can can handle any text I throw at it um, more or less. That's really cool. So so Colin, if people want to take classes with you, where you said Ancient Language Institute, where where else can we find you and learn, keep up with? How can we follow your work as we're you know? So um, keep going. Can I have? Uh, you can check me out on Twitter um, at Colin Gorey, C O L I N G O R R I E. Also on YouTube under the same uh the same moniker so i i put out stuff on both those platforms um as well as on substack so it's it's, everything's just under my name under the the various uh platforms but if you want to take classes you go to um ancient language institute so that's under uh, ancientlanguage.com and they've got latin um we've got latin we've got greek we've got old english and we've got biblical hebrew Uh, so i i'm uh I'm currently the only uh, the only old English teacher there. So if uh, if you want to come and take old English classes, that's how you would that's how you do it. Very cool. Well, I um I really appreciate the the time. Um, I think there's some. I mean, it's just interesting to learn more about the history of literature that you know became modern English and, and things and influenced some really great writers. And uh, but I think some of your methods and the ways you learn and the way you're teaching is 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 really helpful for. Um, you know, for learners of Greek. And I've got some ideas of things I want to try as I'm continually trying to grow. And then also just to see somebody else producing another, you know, another resource in the style of lingua Latina um, is really cool. And so I think there's some great tidbits in this conversation for, uh, you know, creators as well. Um, So yeah, thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. I I would like to just say, you know, I know we have a lot of students of Greek, students and teachers of Greek in the audience. Um, I would just say, when you study Old English, you're studying, the earlier back you go in a language, the more in related languages, the more similar they are to each other. Mm. So you will find, uh, and I've certainly found this as I've been studying Greek after Old English, you will find so many parallels. You will you will learn about the sound correspondences between um, Old English and Ancient Greek, and you'll be able to start guessing words. And it's huh. really, really quite cool to uh, to experience. So if you want to get a different perspective on um, on Greek, you can come and take a vacation in Old English land, and uh, it'll 
it, it'll teach you a thing or two. It's quite fun. Well, and I found that too. Like I'm, I'm trying to work on Hebrew at the moment as well. And like, I'll look at, okay, what are the, what's this related to? So I'll try to see if my, like sometimes uh Brown drivers Briggs will list like Syriac words or all these other things. Like the more, the more pegs you can hang a vocabulary item on, the easier it is to remember, I think. So that, yeah, that would be, being able to use old English as a peg would be pretty cool and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll give you one example just as a, a b- before I, um, before I, I shut my mouth. <laughs> so, um, porewo, porewo in Greek, um, porewestai, uh, to go. Yeah. In old English, uh, a P in Greek corresponds to an F usually in old English. So okay. how do we say to go in old English? Faran, faran. So that por goes into old English as far. And that's pretty regular. So you can see these P, F correspondences all over the place. That's called Grimm's Law, by the way. Interesting. Huh. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I've, I saw someone, um, I don't know if it was an interview here or something I read about how, oh, I think it was a Rob Words episode, if you're familiar with that YouTuber. Um, he was talking about how certain words go, you know, they their pedigree goes back to, you know, ancient Indo-European. And I believe that Grimm's Law applied for explaining why the Greek and English words for to break wind are related. <laughs> yep, that would make sense. PF. <laughs> yep. So that was pretty funny. Well, again, Colin, I really appreciate it. Um, I hope uh, I plan to keep an eye on your your resources as they they come out. And you know, if I had if I had unlimited time and money, I would definitely be in one of your classes because um, it just seems uh, it's just such a cool cool thing to be able to read such ancient you know um, ancient literature about you know, where we come from. Um, and uh, it's really exciting to see more resources being written in this style. So yeah, thanks. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to uh, chat with you today. Yeah. Right. We'll uh, hopefully, maybe we'll have you back in a year or two as you can let us know how the how it's going. Sounds good. Can't wait. Intro and outro music is Funky Thanksgiving by Admiral Bob, used with gratitude under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license. The track can be found at dig.ccmixer.org.